Welcome to the Magnet Classics series, where we delve into the influential releases the magazine has championed over the years. I'm your host, Hobart Rowland, Episode 1, The Real Story Behind the Making of Pete Yorn's Music for the Morning After. Pete Yorn's acclaimed debut may be a classic now, but it really couldn't have been released at a worse time. It was March 2001 and the music industry was reeling from the dot-com bust, and things would only get worse. Among the top-selling artists that year were Michael Jackson, J-Lo, Shaggy, and Stained. Critics, meanwhile, couldn't get enough of The Strokes' debut, Radiohead's Amnesiac, The White Stripes' third effort, and Jay-Z's The Blueprint. Could a nice guy from the Jersey suburbs with a communications degree from Syracuse University and a name that falls at the end of the alphabet really stand a chance in this environment? The answer was yes and no. It certainly didn't hurt that Yorn had two brothers with some serious clout in the entertainment industry. Oldest brother Kevin is a high-powered entertainment lawyer. Middle brother Rick manages superstars like Scarlett Johansson. We got the full story from Pete Yorn in an extensive interview from his Los Angeles home. I grew up in Jersey, and from an early age, I definitely remember gravitating towards music, as most kids do. I remember being really little, one of my earliest memories, and I had this little uh, 45 record player, Sesame Street, and I had a little Sesame Street 45 little carrying box, and I used to play like... I remember I used to play that over sing, sing a song in my little playroom. Uh, as a, I might have been like three years old, four years old. I remember I used to play Logical Song by Supertramp over and over. And now it's weird. I'm kind of like allergic to that song. I remember like, when I was young, I thought life was so impractical. I remember I, would, I was obsessed with that song four years old, 45, probably scratched the heck out of it, uh, but I would listen to it over and over. Middle brother Rick Yorn recalls the first time he realized his brother had something special. I had my drum set. Back then I had this Slingerland kind of classic little five-piece thing and, you know, with the two mounted toms, one floor tom, a snare and a bass, and I, and I had, um, uh, uh, you know, I, was, I gave Pete a couple of drum lessons you know, he was maybe six or seven years old, and um, 
And I had another friend who was also had the same name as me as Rick. And back then, you know, in where we lived in Jersey, was kind of in the country, and we would not even lock our doors. And a lot of times, this, this other guy, Rick, would come and play my drums. Bottom line, I came home one day, and I hear someone going off on my drums in the basement. I just, I figure it's my friend Rick. And I go down there, and it's this little kid, Pete, my little brother. And so... You know, by the time I was like seven, eight, they're in high school and they're turning me on to music. They're just cranking good music in the house from Zep early on, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, um, you know, UFO, Blue Oyster Cult. They'd leave the room and I would like sneak behind the drums and I'd start messing around. And then finally one day my brother showed me like a beat, just like a standard, you know, and I'm lefty. So I learned on a, on, he's righty, so I learned on his righty kit. So the hi-hat would be here and the snare would be here. So I never crossed hands. I just played straight. And I so said, I still play. Uh, I have a weird ambidextrous thing where I'm partially ambidextrous. So my right foot was strong enough to play the kick on the righty kit. And when I tried to switch over to a lefty kit, like my left foot, it just felt weird. So my right foot is stronger, but I play straight. My middle brother had gone to Maryland. And he came back and he was like, dude, check out, check out this song by a band called The Smiths, you know, and played me. He, we, he had moved from, from the, the metal into like the college rock, the college music. And it happened, it felt like it happened almost overnight um, where I heard Big Mouth Strikes Again and I heard In Between Days by The Cure and I heard this kind of guitar strumming that just like, you know, that this really fast strumming that... I think hit me because I was a drummer. I love the rhythm of it, like, you know, that, and then like, that hit me, and I was like, I gotta learn some chords. I gotta learn how to play guitar. And we had a beater guitar, which I still have in my house, um, that was my mom's, that had like two strings on it, and I would start messing, I started like, the earliest things were like, I would just start messing with like bass lines, you know, like, um, and then eventually I, someone showed me some chords and I remember my pinky would hurt so bad trying to play like, like a G chord. And I was get like this, like, I had to build up calluses and, um, but I stuck with it. Rick Yorn. He actually was in a couple of really good bands in high school and, um, you know, my parents were kind of old-fashioned, though, and go to college, and he almost, you know, a, a couple of labels took interest to him when he, you know, when he was playing, and, and you know, in high school. Like I remember the talent show. You know, he was in two bands. One band took first prize, and then the other band took second prize. Like both of his bands, right? One he was played drums. One he was the lead singer, guitar. These guys at a talent show at, my, at the high school heard me sing from behind the drums. I think I, we sang Talent Show by The Replacements, my my uh, my band, I think we were called Cheese. And I sang it like Don Henley style, you know, behind the kit. And then uh, they these, this other band heard me sing. And so they were like, and I wasn't a good singer then at all, but I was, I just went for it. They were like, would you, would you want to sing with us? We're going to do Rockin' in the Free World by Neil Young. And uh, they were like this heavy band. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it for fun. Let's do it. And I got up and I sang no guitar, just like me on the mic. And uh, that was my first time in front of a band. And and I just kind of closed my eyes and went for it. And we ended up winning the whole talent show. 
And I remember, you know, that's one of those moments as a kid, you're like, whoa, it was like a big, it was like a big deal in my small town for me. And still didn't think it would be a career. I was going to go to Syracuse in a year and, you know, and, uh, and say to be a tax lawyer, but it was fun. As a student at Syracuse University, Bjorn found a gig in a college band and he started to write in earnest. Freshman year, I was living in a dorm in Flint Hall on Mount Olympus. It's like this like big hill and there were two dorms up there, Flint and Day Hall. And uh, right away, I mean, there were, right away I started smoking more weed than I ever had because it was just what it seemed like everybody was doing. Every room I went to, they just had these giant bongs out in the dorms and just be smoking weed all day. Sorry, mom. Sorry, dad. I remember at first when I was away at school, there like the first few months, I remember writing an essay for my writing class about this heavy, I felt I, this heavy nostalgia for like something lost like I'm in this new phase of my life I'm in college you know you're a kid you think it, it you know you look back now and it's like oh that was nothing but but I remember writing a like a paper that was like things sort of the 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 this idea that never nothing's ever going to be the same you know you're you're out of your nest and you're in this new new phase of your life and I remember it had this just thick nostalgia and it probably a precursor to um, that feeling I think a lot of people get from some of my songs of this sort of longing, nostalgic feeling. I think sophomore year, I decided when I went back for fall break in October, I'm like, I'm going to bring my drum set up and maybe try and get in a band as a drummer. And so I brought my drums up and I saw an ad at the student center, at Shine Student Center, that said drummer needed, if you're into the posies, Dinosaur Jr., Big Star, The Who, you know, call this number. And I ripped off the little number at the bottom and I called. And at the when I called, the other end of the line was a kid named Joe Kennedy. And Joe Kennedy, uh, people who know me and my band, uh, he was in my band for years. We were called Andy Said 15, and I was just the drummer. I didn't sing. Joey sang. We sang his songs, and we played covers. We played, like, I remember playing, like, Positive Bleeding by Urge Overkill uh, uh, and some other fun songs of that era. Um, and then a lot of great original songs that Joe had written, really, really cool songs. And, uh, and then he graduated, and that thing just was done. It was just for fun. At the time, I was writing a lot of songs. I remember I just was writing like sometimes three three songs a day, but I wasn't really sharing them with anybody except my brother. Maybe I would call him, uh, who he was out in California. I'd be like, "Check this tune out. Check this tune out." Um, but I was keeping it low, and um, and I was just having fun with it. It was still I was still supposed to finish college and maybe go to law school, but I think it was junior year. Some girl had knew that I played guitar a little bit and had seen me maybe like just strumming around. And she asked me, she's like, we're doing a charity um, talent show for our sorority at this bar. It's like a Saturday afternoon, it's packed college bar. And I decide I'm gonna play this one song that I had just written um, called Someday. And ironically, the song would end up on my breakup record. It's the last song on breakup years later. Um, that I did with Scarlett 
but uh, I played an acoustic version of it, and they didn't even have like a setup. They they just the MC just held his mic like up between me and the guitar, and I played it as this song like. Well, all I ask for is a state of mind where I can keep myself in line. And I played this super creaky version of it, and the place just hushed down. And I finished it, and they just went, ah! And I won, I won the talent show thing, and it was for charity. And so it was a, that was one of those pivotal moments. Like, if they're making the movie of me, like, that scene would be in the movie, you know? Post-graduation, Jorn's parents were pushing for law school, but he headed to Los Angeles instead. And by the middle of junior year, I had decided, all right, I'm going to graduate. I know it's important to my parents, my grandparents, that I finish school. I don't want to waste their money they're spending on me. And my grandpa, who's staring at me right now in his picture, he lived to 104. He would always say, Petey, whatever you do, you got to have what they call a backup plan. And so, you know, backup plan would be my, my, my graduating college, you know. So I graduated and I knew I was going to move out to California, um, follow my brothers because they were my best friends and my heroes. And I would, I would, I would have moved to Dover, Delaware, if they were living in Dover, Delaware, wherever. You know, like, no offense to Dover, Delaware, but just wherever they were, I was going to go. And I'd already spent a couple summers out there before I graduated. So I graduate May of uh, 1996, and I moved out two weeks later to California to take my shot at music. And. Uh, when I first moved out, my brother was my drummer. I think I would sometimes, from the get-go, play out as Pete Yorn, and then sometimes as Million, and sometimes as Lolly Mellow. Like, I had a few different fake band names that I would mess around with. My friend from college, my fraternity brother from college, people um, have an idea about fraternities, but my fraternity at Syracuse was like a mix of so many different kind of interesting people you had your like cliche frat guys but then you had these like sick artists and athletes and one of them was a kid named adam cohen who's the son of leonard cohen he knew a guy named flanagan who had a place called bargo where people were playing at it's like basically a little irish pub small place cabaret on fairfax across from canner's deli and i had made some demos and adam hooked me up and he gave him the Flanagan. So he said, check it out. Because I think Adam sang background vocals on one of the songs. And Flanagan, to his credit, he got it right away. And he's like, let's get Pete in here. And so that's what got me into Largo. There were a lot of really talented artists at the time playing there. Um, I remember Amy Mann was playing there a lot. John Bryan was playing there a lot. Elliot Smith was playing there a lot. A young Tenacious D was playing there. They always had a comedy night as well. Um, and, uh, I would just get in there and try and do my thing. And what would happen was when those other artists would play, I remember Fiona Apple was playing there, like you could hear a pin drop, it'd be silent. But when I'd play all my friends who had moved out from Jersey and New York, they would all show up and just take over the bar and they'd just be t t yapping through my set, you know, and I didn't care. It was fun. Everyone was having a great time. But it wasn't like, like when you would, when I, when I would see other acts at Largo, it would be like, you know, like, like really intimate, just silent. And I remember finally, 
the challenge for me, I was like, I want to learn how to get everybody to shut up, like for fun, without telling them to shut up, you know? And I learned, it's like, just get quieter and quieter and quieter. All of a sudden, people stop, and then they get, they start to pay attention. Bjorn was also performing at the Viper Room at the time. A particularly powerful show at the Roxy earned him a deal with MCA, which he turned down. A little later, he was in the studio in New York with Don Fleming. I was playing at Largo. I had a bunch of songs. I was recording stuff, demos on my four track at home, like on my cassette, my little Fostex. And um, I think we decided, um, let's see if we can get a producer interested that would help us make a record. And maybe then that would, you know, open up some, some opportunities for us. And so we were able to get to Don Fleming through like his manager, producer managers. And he liked my demos. He totally got them. And so we hashed a plan to make, to record a record where I would play pretty much everything in New York. Uh, and I remember we like, we're at this studio called the big house. So it was like in Times Square, like above some like porn shop. We recorded basically what would be the night before we call it, uh, the, the record that never came out, but there are songs from it that have appeared in the world in our place. One song, Simon Eyes, made it onto music for the morning after in its exact state. Let's see. be the oldest song that made it on the music for the morning after and it's inspired by jack the ripper um this idea of what was going through his head if he it's a it's a love song in a strange way what was he thinking was he when he was trying to con someone into coming down some dark alleyway with them in the back of his head as he thinking don't come with me this is gonna be bad um or was he just all in like oh please come with me please yes 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 but there was part i don't know i was into this idea that maybe there he was conflicted but he couldn't help himself rick yorn loved the fleming album it was brilliant it was really lo-fi um and uh, there was some legal thing, and um, and but he got signed. He actually originally got signed to MCA, but he walked away. He really wanted to be on Columbia, and then and then Virgin really aggressively went after the Fleming record, but they they 
they had some notes and Pete just didn't want to make any changes back then. Somehow in between kind of figuring out what we were going to do with that record, uh, I met Walt Vincent. Our Walt Vincent. We had this band called Show Blood where we would each, we would all sing songs. So we did uh, a couple of my songs and we all switched instruments. It was really a good time. Uh, and uh, everybody played different instruments on everybody else's songs. But Pete's songs were definitely standouts and I was just like blown away. When I recorded the Fleming record, it was 1998 and we did it to tape in a studio, traditional studio kind of situation. And somewhere at some point I meet Walt Vincent and also JJ, who was my friend, Jason Johnson, who's like, like I said, the guy behind me on the album cover with the tattoo. Um, they both kind of show me like this new thing called Pro Tools and Digital Performer. And at first I was like, I was kind of snobby about it. I was like, Pro Tools, that sounds so lame. That's the name sounds lame, Pro Tools. Like, sounds so nerdy. But I quickly learned, and I always say this, that it's not so much the car, but it's the driver. And so I have these guys who could kind of like make these really cool sounding recordings on their computer and we can do it at home, not on the clock of a big studio. And it's somehow um, the way that we did it um, ended up ended up kind of in my mind creating something that I felt felt newer or fresher. Jason Johnson brought his rig over to my house and we set up in my basement and I've had my drums, my bass, I played drums, bass, and acoustic guitar and a rough vocal to this song. You and I with two of a kind. I hate to say it, but you'll never relate. Just another. I burned the files onto a CDR of just another that I had recorded in my basement that were just bass, drums, acoustic guitar, and vocal. And I bring it to Walt. And I'm like, all right, load it into your computer and let's see what, what you can do. And so Walt, within like a couple hours, puts these like synth strings, these like fake horns that sounded real but fake at the same time, this like beautiful arrangement over it. He gets the harmonica out, he plays that beautiful harmonica at the, at the end of the second chorus, that moment, and does a quick mix and he says, go home. And at the same time, I think I came up with the, the that little, that lick, and then he was inspiring me, you know, like, like I would like be in a room with someone that he would lay something down and I'd be like, Oh, I got an idea now. And then we would go back and forth and he made a quick mix. I get in my car and go home. And it was one of those moments where I think I pulled over and I was like, this is different. Like the Fleming records. Cool. It's rad. It's very nineties, but this is something this felt timeless to me in a different way. I just went bonkers uh, because it was so so interesting because like he like when the songs are just him and acoustic guitar, they struck me as having this kind of alt country uh, feel, you know, a very kind of Wilco uh, kind of Sunvolty sort of, you know, uh, he had a sort of a deep male voice and. Uh, um, 
and uh, and and I was like, that's cool. Let's do something different with it. And like so, like on the way over to the studio, I had been um, listening to garbage. That kind of you know like late nineties. Uh, rhythm programming kind of vibe, you know? So then I went back and I started seeing him maybe once every week, once every two weeks, sometimes we not for a month. I don't know. It was casual. It was almost like we were making a record. We were just creating more songs and adding cool stuff to it. It was like a lot of those ideas came up from us try, not trying to be cool, but basically goofing off at the time. And then, and then taking a step back and saying, okay, now we got to do something cool. And the other one saying, Dude, what, no, you're crazy. You're not changing that. At some point during this process, Yorn got a meeting with Columbia Records. Based on that stuff, I remember like Lose You, um, Just Another, Black we had done, Sense we had done, Murray, um, Columbia Records signed me. But the thing that took it over the top was the day that Will Botwin, the head of A&R for Columbia, he came out to see me in California from New York after I'd already played for them in New York City one time before. I played Just Another Girl acoustic and I played Murray. And it was one of those times I'm like in their office or like, so like, all right, Johnny Einer's like, all right, what do you got, kid? One of those moments. And uh, I play him that song. He's like, all right, it's cool. What else you got? And I was like, we got this song, this song. I was like, all right, like, we'll let you know. We'll let you know. It felt like one of those moments I'd flown all the way to, to like, you know, not get signed even I was hoping that maybe I'd get signed you know like one of those stories you hear and nothing happened that day but like a month later he did send Will Botwin out and then Will was like you got anything new and literally the day before I had written and it was just a lucky timing and, and I said I got this new song and uh goes like this and he sat in the chair right next to me and I played it for him and finished the song he looks up at me and he smiled big and he goes let's do this I'm like what do you mean he's like let's make a record let's go and I got signed that day uh, to Columbia and I was like ah and in 99 you gotta remember like obviously any if you get signed to a major label anytime it's a big deal but it was it was the only way then, you know, it was pre-MySpace, pre-Napster, pre all that stuff, you know, it was, you had to get a record deal. And that was the dream as a kid. And so by my birthday, July 27, 1999, I remember I actually signed a deal on my birthday. I never wanted to stop working in the kind of ramshackle way that we were working. Like we were working on not great equipment, we didn't have like anything fancy, but I felt like that forced us to get creative with what we had. Um, and Walt, for all his technical wizardry and all his um, kind of um, uh, uh, his ability to create these next level uh, uh, sonic landscapes, um, he also was into like, you know, guided by voices you know and 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 garage rock and lo-fi stuff and so he he was showing me how to like i could i could like the fleming record was super cool but it was it was an extension of what i was just already doing in my house alone on my four track 
where I would just play everything and it was kind of old school. In fact, I think it's aged well musically because it has a timeless thing about it now, looking back at it, you know? Um, it didn't really embrace all this technology that may be considered kind of passe now. You know what I mean? It's just kind of classic. And so that's a cool thing about it. Well, I think it holds up. But like Wall at the time was like, he's like, dude, you can play drums. And then I could add this cool like percut like electronic drum machine percussion over it. And we could like, we can chop it up and make loops and all this stuff. And that, at the time that seemed really interesting to me and and kind of some a way that I hadn't worked before in a way like I always wanted that balance I wanted that balance of like you know things that felt drum machiney but this kind of loose real drums underneath it you know um, to have a nice swagger to it not too not too clean but not too dirty you know and we never called it making a record we were just making songs but then once I got signed there was I wouldn't call it pressure from Columbia, but they were like, all right, some people, I remember uh, George Draculius, the great producer, always used to joke. He's like, who is this R. Walt Vincent? I don't even think he exists. It's just you, isn't it, alone? I'm like, no, Walt's a real guy. Because Walt hadn't really worked on much before. He was kind of unknown, you know? He's like this guy in a garage in Van Nuys. And, uh, but I just loved what we were getting. And so... Columbia was like, well, maybe we can get a name, you know, in there. You know, I don't blame them uh, as well to work with you guys. And so I met with a bunch of producers and I didn't, I was like, nah, nah, nah. And then Brad Wood, I thought he might be interesting because he had a great track record with debut albums. And, and he'd, he'd done some cool stuff that I like the sound of. And he, um, he heard what Walt and I had been working up and he was just like, I get it. I don't want to even, I don't want to mess with what you guys are doing. I just want to come in and help you guys bring this home because this is awesome. Brad Wood. When they hired me to help make the record, I was adamant about working, continuing to work with, with Walt because the, the, the CD I was sent of demos had stuff that spanned uh, an era, you know, of songwriting and engineering uh, uh, work. And the stuff that I most liked was the stuff that turned out to be done with this guy named R. Walt Vincent. Like he was so stoked. And so I was like, here's our guy. So he came in and he did help. Uh, I, we were, Walt had turned me on to the Big Lebowski at the time. So I always say, Brad came in and helped tie the room together. So he kind of helped us put ten little finishing touches on things. He mixed most of the record. He played some great parts also. Awesome. Like I think... That's that. There's that high bass at the end of "On Your Side," like boom, 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 boom. I think that's him. He played some great synth parts, keyboard parts that are very, like the end of "Sleep Better," like these like cool little nuggets. Um, and he was just such a great guy and fun to work with. Um, so we were we made a great team, and it was weird at first to bring a third person in because Malt and I had been so like in the zone of just doing it. A certain way uh but then you know brad came in and he figured out our rhythm and then we we really got to, had a good thing going and to that end uh i felt like my job was going to be more um well, i was producing for sure once we got started but it, it felt a bit uh, at times like executive producing where i was sort of overseeing uh uh 
sort of the overall picture. And my concern right away was um, not having things sound too dated too soon. And a lot of that was alleviated by just kind of focusing on on who Pete really loved as a songwriter. So Bruce Springsteen is huge in his world, huge. Songs like Murray, you know, were, 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 well, I was adamant about that stuff being on there and um, and that he had like a big, bold, almost like 80s kind of drum sound at times that was, you know, that was sort of uh, almost sound like a stadium sound because, you know, that, that's what we were shooting for. That's what he aspires to, you know, and uh, and some of his sentiments are epic and um, certainly sonically, you know, that's kind of what we were going for. I wanted something that sounded sort of fresh, but not something that would be almost, you know, dated by the minute it came out, you know. I remember not thinking about anything other than I just want to make music that I love. And if I leave the studio and play something back that I feel and doesn't make leave me numb, then that's amazing. And with every song, we were just hitting that. I remember I was just like, I love this. I don't know who else is going to love this, but I love it. And that's, I had seen too many friends get signed to big label deals, get the advance, put out, make the record with a big producer, put it out, nothing happened and get dropped. From like 96 to 99, I saw that happen probably like six times. I'm just going to follow what I love and I'm going to take it step by step. We're going to lay this part down and this part's going to lead me to the next part. And then the, how that, that part sounds is going to lead me to the next part, you know, and that's how it still works in a lot of ways um, where you just, you just, it's like this staircase in front of you filled with fog and you just have to take the next step. You don't need to see the top of the staircase. And then you take that step and the fog dissipates and then that the next step appears. And that's what happens in the studio when we're creating very often. And I like to work that way. Um, and that's the way I've been working with Jackson, you know, all the way up through caretakers and what we're working on now. Um, Jackson Phillips. Columbia, when we finished the record, they were so supportive, but I think they were waiting for some sort of sign. Like, when are we going to put this record out? How are we going to put this record out? I don't know. You know, like, I don't think singer songwriter was really the thing at the moment. The biggest thing that happened was I think they decided like all right well let's send it out let's just send it out to some people and see if we get some feedback and the feedback was like re really positive and so i think that got them excited and at the same time i think you know they were looking for anything that they could like kind of hang a tent pole on you know it was like i had i had the, done the score for me myself and irene the jim carrey movie the farley brothers movie I think the movie came out before my record did. So I think they were seizing on like, oh, well, I got Strange Condition and Just Another in that movie and I scored it. Let's like talk about him in, in that context a little bit to maybe get to music for the morning after. But when they started sending music for the morning after out, that was when people were like, yo, what the hell? You got to put this record out. What's going on? And so that was um, that was really cool. And then picking the first single. I think I was the one who was like, it's got to be life in a chain because I felt like in my mind, you know, the record has a lot of different flavors, but I felt like somehow like everything was encapsulated in that one song. R. Walt Vincent. What can I do to the beginning of this song to uh, get that sense of coming from the old time country world 
into this modern, into the 20th, almost 21st century. And so that's why I was like, dude, I got an idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fucking old, old records the beginning of the song. And, uh, and, you know, put like a weird EQ and a weird flanger on it. And I dug up a sample of some, of some record noise. And I'm like, this is cool. Now it sounds like this song starts in the 40s, <laughs> you know, and then makes a jump into the 21st century. I never get tired of singing that song. It's always fun. This, all these years later, people ask me, you ever get tired of singing certain songs? I'm like, not, mm. Certain ones, and I won't sing them if I'm tired of it, but uh, Life in a Chain, every time, is just fun. Just like, it just feels like life. For me, who was always that kid from Jersey, to get signed to Columbia Records, Bruce, Billy Joel, Simon and Garfunkel, Leonard Cohen, um, I can just go on, Bob Dylan, <laughs> I go on and on, to be, get signed to Columbia, make a record without compromising anything. Like, I easily could have gone the other way and like, okay, we're going to go fancy studio now, big producer and all this stuff. I was like, I'm not leaving the garage. I, like, I, I want to just make this record because I like the sound and I, I was willing to risk it all to just follow my muse. And then to get success from that was the greatest feeling ever. And I still feel buzzed from it right now, um, talking about it. Um, and I floated on that feeling for for a, for. A, few years I remember just like I just couldn't believe it it was like I pinched myself I, I can't believe we made this record people like it like it wasn't the biggest thing it wasn't you know but it was like big enough where it felt like a real breakthrough as us Jews saying we see a, we sing a song called Dianu at Passover time and we I would sing it for years I never knew what the heck it meant I recently just like looked it up like what is what are they saying and it's it's basically if 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 you were given this, but not this, it's enough. And if that was the only record I ever got to make and have success that it had, they would have been enough. So I'm very grateful.
Thanks for joining us for Episode 1 of Magnet Classics. Episode 2, The Real Story Behind the Making of Matthew Sweet's Girlfriend, coming soon.